Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today's Tuesday, February 13th, day 130 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with Zman Israel editor Biranit Goren and legal reporter Jeremy Sharon. Hello to you both. Hi, Amanda. Good morning, Amanda. Bira will bring us a troubling potential new threat from the Houthis. We'll also hear about France's written proposal aimed at ending hostilities with Israel and settling the disputed Lebanon-Israel frontier. Jeremy is here to brief us on violent settler attacks in the Northern West Bank, and we'll also learn about how the February 27th municipal elections will be carried out under war. All this and much, much more when we're back. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. First, some headlines. Two people are being treated by medics following a rocket impact in Kiryat Shmona. The Magyan David Dome Ambulance Service says both victims are conscious, although initial reports suggest that they are in serious condition. A Palestinian driver who appeared to attempt to run over pedestrians in the West Bank has been shot and arrested by Israeli soldiers. The IDF says a knife was also found in the man's car, and it describes the incident as a terror attack. Following U.S. pressure, Israel has reportedly sent a delegation to Cairo for talks on a framework that will see the release of hostages and achieve an extended pause. Dozens of Hamas operatives have been killed by Israeli troops in the Gaza Strip over the past day, mostly in the Khan Yunus area, where much of the fighting is focused. The IDF announced the deaths of three reservists, including a senior officer who were killed during fighting in southern Gaza yesterday, bringing the toll of slain troops in the ground offensive against Hamas to 232. Bira, you alerted me to a threat from the Houthis that I hadn't even considered, but apparently deep, deep under the Red Sea, there are undersea cables that provide the internet and communications to many parts of Asia, East Africa, and the Middle East, where we are. Now, apparently these cables are a target by the Houthis. So what do you know, Bira? Yeah, so we've come accustomed to thinking about the Houthi uh, threat uh, as being um, related to commercial shipping and carrier uh, ships in the Red Sea, which essentially the, the, the solution to that was for the United States to create a coalition, uh, primarily with the United Kingdom, but with other Western countries and, and send um, battleships to the area and, and take the fight to the Houthis. However, um, 
around about December, two months ago, an official Telegram account that is linked to the Houthis ran a, a map of the underground cables that exist near Yemen, west of Yemen, in the Bab el-Mandev Straits. There are about a dozen or so uh, undersea uh, cables there, fiber optic cables, that are essentially responsible for about 90% of the traffic, data traffic going or connecting um, Far East Asia and uh, the Middle East and therefore um, uh, Europe. Um, this isn't just about, you know, the first thing we, we think about is internet connection, but it's actually what is this internet connection used for? And it's financially, you know, it's financially a big story because it's responsible for the vast majority of financial transactions. In fact, when we look at the overall global effect, not just in Yemen or in the Red Sea, 99% of data in the world is carried by undersea cables. So, you know, this is the most vulnerable um, point, if you will, uh, right now that I don't think that um, it is fully thought of uh, as far as the, the threat goes. Um, over a year ago, we had in gas pipelines, we saw what happened when the Nord Stream 1 and was blown up and the Nord Stream 2 uh, was damaged between Germany and Russia. It, it, it capacitated um, the, the gas uh, flow to, to Europe, raising prices, creating uh, issues with warming up, you know, houses and winters, etc., so that was a tangible, um, a, a tangible feeling. But we also see once in a while some data issues and financial issues, which were just at the start of them. And now the Houthis have put it on the table. Do they have the capability to take out the cables? I mean, we always talk about them as rebels, which makes them sound kind of cute and small. Do they have the technical knowledge and the capability to go down that deep and destroy these cables? Well, it's debatable. I mean, there's um, some some experts that are, that are saying, you know, that um, estimate that the Houthis don't have the cap capabilities to hit the uh, fiber optics cables, which are really at the bottom of the sea at, at a point which is quite deep. deep. Uh, but it does need to be taken into consideration. In, under normal circumstances, all those areas with, with uh, critical fiber optic cables uh, are being watched by international forces with small ships that are there that in, not just for security reasons, but if something happens, if a cable gets hit or whatever, they're immediately going down to fix it. Because of what happened in the, in the Red Sea and because of the Houthi attacks on the commercial ships, those maintenance ships, if you will, those are not there anymore. So if the Houthis actually managed to even, you know, just tear up one cable or whatever, and you need to fix it, that's going to take time. It's going to take time to bring the, the right uh, servicemen there, etc. So we don't know what the, the Houthi capabilities are. We didn't think they'd be able to, to you know, to, or we didn't even, you know, consider them when we spoke about multi-location war with Israel. We thought about Lebanon, we thought about Gaza, we thought about the West Bank, we even Syria, but we never thought, or it was never debated or discussed what would happen if the Houthi rebels will go into the picture. So I would suggest, certainly after October 7th, not to underestimate any threat. 
and just to be sure to, to take that into consideration. And it's just starting to be discussed now. I think we'll hear more about it because the one thing we need to remember is that the Houthi may not be able to do it, but Iran can. And Iran are backing the Houthi. So if they don't have the infrastructure and the equipment now, they could easily have it tomorrow. Let's talk about some potential good news on the horizon. France has delivered a written proposal to Beirut aimed at ending hostilities with Israel and settling the disputed Lebanon-Israel frontier. It calls for Hezbollah and other groups to withdraw 10 kilometers from the border. And the three-step plan sees a 10-day process of de-escalation ending with negotiations on the long unresolved delineation of a land border between Lebanon and Israel. How serious and practical and realistic do you think this plan is, Bira? It's a good question because um, there is a complication where it comes to Lebanon. Lebanon is not a very solid state with that you know with with a government that is very stable that you discuss with. And Hezbollah is not just a, a terror group; it's also a very uh, big political faction faction within the Lebanese government with a lot of uh, impact there. So it's the question, who are you, who are you going, negotiating with? The France proposal, which was um, uh, it, it, a copy of it, uh, Reuters has seen. So we, we know that it's a written proposal. It was forwarded by the French uh, foreign minister to Lebanon and to Israel and to the Americans. The proposal calls for, as you said, a withdrawal of uh, 10 kilometers, about six miles from the border. That's about a third of what Hezbollah is supposed to withdraw from. I mean, the the, the uh, UN Resolution 1701 from 2006 was talking about 30 kilometers, so up to the Litani River. I'm not sure Israel will see 10 kilometers is enough. The, the second problem is that the um, uh, the proposal suggests that the Lebanese army will take place, will go into that demilitarized, so to speak. It's not demilitarized, but a de-Hezbollah area, you know, that the, the uh, Lebanese army will go in there. But as far as Israel is concerned, you know, I mean, the Hezbollah army is bigger than the Lebanese army. It has more effect there. So just bringing the Lebanese army there is just, just tantamount to saying we're going to leave this area uh, available to the Hezbollah to access anytime they want. I'm not sure that it'll uh, um, assail the worries of whoever lives up north and uh, worries from uh, being hit by missiles from Hezbollah one day. Um, on Hezbollah's side, I don't know that the this is what they want. I'm not sure what this is what they want. I mean, essentially, the, the, from Hezbollah's side, their entire uh, claim is that Israel has breached the the, the borders, that it has uh, overstepped the ge geographical uh, areas of the border, which is why they went there to begin with. And I don't see the, the French proposal addressing that. So I don't know if that will, you know, be something that Hezbollah will want. It's important to say that... Um, there's no question, in my mind at least, that both Hezbollah and Israel would dearly love to have some kind of a ladder to step off. I'm not sure that the French proposal will be one that will solve uh, all the problems between Israel and Hezbollah, but it might be a stepping stool for just both sides to take a step back and breathe and, and stop the fighting uh, right now. 
Um, but we'll see. Hezbollah is, is still saying that whatever they do depends on what happens in Gaza. So we'll have to wait and see. Bira, thank you so much for these updates. Thanks, Amanda. Bye-bye. We'll go to a short break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Jeremy, we reported yesterday that two Palestinians were shot and injured and a pair of vehicles and a home were torched during violent settler attacks in the northern West Bank. Apparently, part of this was next to the village of Hurara, which has been a flashpoint site for several years now. What can you tell us about these attacks? Yeah, so last night, what happened was, according to the reports, settlers came out from the settlement of Yitzhar, which is in the northern uh, West Bank and is known to be a, a radical settlement. And they attacked uh, they attacked people in the Asira al-Kiblia uh, village, a Palestinian village, which is just northwest of Yitzhar. Um, a couple of vehicles were set on fire, so was a home, and there was shooting incidents uh, during the attack. And, and a 20-year-old man and a 16-year-old were, were both hit, reportedly by settlers, although you know, that hasn't been confirmed yet. And they, the, and those those two people were hospitalized. So you know we saw um, videos emerging on social media of of these fires burning in the village. And then that, like you said, there was another incident in Huwara, which is uh, also close by Tietzau, where uh, another vehicle was set on fire. And and so this is you know another one of these severe incidents of of violence perpetrated by uh, radicals um, radical settlers. And, and in the truth, the northern Samaria region, uh, not just Yitzhar, but settlements and illegal outposts uh, around there are notorious for the, the, the number of violent attacks which have emanated from them. There are no arrests made last night, correct, Jeremy? So far, there, ha- there have not been any arrests as, as far as we're aware. And, you know, these attacks come against the background of, of a, a big spike in, in settler violence, you know, uh, in 2022 already there was actually a, a almost a 60% increase in settler violence over 2021 and then in 2023 until October 7th there was a 30% increase in settler violence on top of even the 22 2022 numbers so 2023 was even before October 7th uh, you know a record year for for the number of attacks uh, by settlers against Palestinians according to figures these are figures from the uh, from the UN uh, office for coordination of humanitarian affairs after October 7th then we saw even uh, actually a doubling of 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 the figures we saw before October 7th 
There was 221 incidents in the 23 days of October, after October 7th. Um, and, and so, you know, th- there's actually been a lot of claims and counterclaims within, uh, in, in Israel that, you know, this is, that, especially by, by the, by the hardline, the uh, far right religious parties that, you know, allegations of settler violence are some kind of uh, left wing campaign against, against the settlements. But we really have seen big spikes in in the number of incidents. Uh, uh, it, the truth is that after October, the, the in, in November, the number of incidents did go back down to kind of the, to, to the levels we saw before October seventh in two thousand twenty three. I extremely high, but 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 they have reduced somewhat. And then December also there seems to have been a decline, but we haven't got the the final numbers. But we, you know we have also seen that. Uh, th- this has had a uh, kind of a political effect or a diplomatic effect. We've seen the US issue sanctions against uh, four settlers and they've had their bank accounts frozen and that could have other knock-on effects. And then just yesterday, the UK uh, also issued sanctions against, also against four settlers, one of whom was also on the US list. And and, and all, all the, the, the people on, on the sanctions list have either been indicted, uh, convicted, or, or in, in the UK's case, most of them have only been accused of violent incidents. But they also all, you know, live and have either live in or have established illegal outposts, especially in some of the sensitive areas of the West Bank, like the Jordan Valley and the South Hebron Hills, where, you know, those areas and especially these illegal outposts and these kind of farming outposts often the locus of attacks emanating from these uh, from these outposts and towards uh, local Palestinian communities. So we are we are seeing uh, now a, a diplomatic response to that uh, and to this phenomenon. Preparations for nationwide municipal elections are in full swing ahead of Election Day on February 27th. We know that 12 municipal authorities will not vote on that date because their people are displaced and evacuated to different places throughout the country. But what is most interesting to me is how will the soldiers be voting who are in Gaza? Okay, so yes, it is very interesting. We don't have too many details because the Interior Ministry will not release them due to security conditions. But as the uh, Interior Minister, Moshe Arabel, said yesterday during a briefing on, on this issue, it looks like there will be uh, ballot boxes in Khan Yunus for soldiers uh, who will uh, want to exercise their their right to vote in the in these municipal elections the ministry is not saying how many balloting stations will be set up in gaza for the soldiers and it's also not saying how many you know soldiers on combat duty in gaza are actually eligible eligible uh, again because of security considerations the issue of the soldiers voting in this uh, municipal election is emblematic of the way that the current conflict has really overshadowed these municipal elections entirely. So, you know, they were actually meant to take place at the end of October, but were postponed because of the war. And then they were meant to take take place again in the end of January, but the ongoing conflict, the intensity at that time made uh, that impossible. So now it's uh, been pushed off to the end of February. And even now that the, uh, the conflict in Gaza, uh, has been reduced and, and there are less soldiers uh, act, uh, actively fighting there. You know, the, the, the security issue is still very much uh, a big part of these elections. Um, so the the Interior Ministry told us that they are coordinating with the IDF, with the police, with the, uh, with the Home Front Command, uh, in order to ensure that on election day, voters will, will be safe. Now, you mentioned that there's 12 municipal authorities which won't participate in the elections because their residents have been evacuated because they're close to either the northern border where, where Hezbollah attacks on a daily basis or they're close to the fighting in Gaza. But, 
there are large parts of the country which are still, you know, prone to uh, or, or subject to to rocket fire and other forms of attack from Hezbollah and Hamas. So, and and it seems that the government believes that there will be efforts to. Uh, to you know, to stage attacks on election day, speci- specifically to complicate the election, the uh, the election process, and the director general of the ministry even kind of hinted that that in the event that there is a severe security threat and severe security challenges, the voting might even be called off. Now he he didn't say whether that would be for a specific regions or or, or or for the entire country. He was you know rather cautious to talk about that. But like I said, this whole election is being conducted in the shadow of the war. And, and I think the, the ministry and the government is also worried that um, uh, voter turnout will be significantly suppressed. You know, I think, first of all, there's, there's not so much interest in, in elections right now. Everyone's uh, attention is diverted to, to, you know, this ongoing crisis and, and as well as the security considerations when going out to vote. So that's, you know, that's, that's the situation the country finds itself in as it approaches these, you know, really unique elections. Somehow the state of the streets and the garbage collection are less important right now. I I would agree. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by the Podwaves. If you have any questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom. <laughs>